All right. Good morning. Our passage today is going to come from Acts chapter 7, verse 35 through 53. Read along with me. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly and in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go on before us. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time when they made an idol in the form of a calf, and they brought sacrifices to it and revealed in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Um, this agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up in the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. All right. So there are two accusations against Stephen. This is the end of his speech. After this, um, they will take up stones uh, and he'll become a martyr. Um, but there's two accusations against Stephen at this moment in time. He is accused of first blaspheming Moses, that is the law, talking bad about the law, blaspheming it, saying we don't need it. Um, and second, that Stephen has blasphemed the temple. Uh, and so Stephen has something for them, the temple made of stone. They say that, that Stephen's saying we don't need that anymore either. So they're saying he's blasphemed the law, Moses, and the temple. Um, so Stephen has something for them to see. He's, this is the end of it where he's going to lay out his big argument. And so we're going to look at these arguments individually. We're going to look at first the Moses one and then the temple one. Um, and so what it's actually going to do is he's, he's going to turn their own accusations against him basically back on themselves to show them that ba they basically have done what they accused him of, of doing. Let's just, let's just get into it. So Stephen's answer to the first charge of blaspheming Moses and the law. Um, he answers that in verse uh, 35 through 43. These are about how the ministry of Moses um, worked 
and how the people responded to it. So he starts off by basically pointing out that, um, that God had sent Moses there, that God had sent Moses to do this work, and yet the Israelites rejected Moses when he got there. Um, he points that out. He's going to create a parallel between this and Jesus, and we'll see why in a few minutes. So he starts off by pointing out that God had sent Moses there. They rejected him. Verse 39, it points out that they were, they were constantly wanting to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back into their slavery, um, uh, and, and for them, I guess it had become something that they knew that they understood and there was no fear in the future. They knew what life would be like, even though it was terrible, but they wanted to go back to Egypt where they had been slaves In verse 41, uh, he brings up the golden calf incident, right? Where they, uh, he goes up the mountain, he's gone for a few days. They start thinking he's dead. And so they create, they take all the gold and they make a giant golden calf and they worship it. And basically this is what they worshiped in Egypt. This is what the Egyptians worshiped. And so they're attributing their freedom now to their previous gods as if they're prepping themselves to go back, right? They're sort of trying to get on that God's good side or, or whatever. Um, and then verse 42, he reminds them that they actually worshiped also the sun and the moon and the stars instead of Yahweh. So he's basically saying, God brought you out of your bondage, but all you want is to get back under their authority again, back into your bondage again. And so Stephen is basically saying that, He's playing all the greatest hits for him, right, from their own history. Uh, he's saying, you think I have rejected Moses? Look at all of the things that you guys did that we collectively as a people did when we were in the wilderness after we had been freed. We rejected Moses, all of us. Um, you're accusing me of something that, that we all have done. And so he's, he's like, that's kind of our MO. That's what we've always done. Um, but there's this... There's this verse, uh, verse 37, there's this phrase that he takes from the words of Moses and he lays out, and this is going to become sort of the centerpiece of his argument. Um, he says this in verse 37, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. So he has Moses saying that one day there's going to be another prophet like me who's going to do the same thing. Um, and he's going to come from amongst you. Okay. Now, what in the world did Moses mean? Um, what is he referring to, a, a prophet like him? In what way? So obviously, that's what we need to figure out. But obviously, Stephen believes that Moses was referring to Jesus, um, that this prophet that would one day come, this is him. It's Jesus, the one who they killed, and he's going to get there in a bit. Um, but basically, the early Christians, like Stephen, they believed that, that Jesus came like Moses did, that, that, he, that he, he came and he saw his own people as Moses did, um, and they were in bondage to sin, they were allegiant to earthly kingdoms and kings, they were subservient to them, and just like Moses in Egypt, he came to set them free from all of it, but he tells the story the same way he, told, he told, tells about Moses. He says, but you guys rejected him. And actually, you killed him, just like every prophet you've ever had. Um, so this idea that Jesus is like a new Moses, um, this is not just a Stephen thing. This is an early Christian church thing. There are tons of, of, of sort of references to Jesus as Moses. This was one of the things that, that, that the early Christians always taught. I want to point you uh, I want to point all of this out to you in the book of Matthew, because when you read through the book of Matthew, as we did before the book of Acts, we did like a three-year study in Matthew. Um, and as you move through Matthew, you see Matthew, a Jewish writer, making Moses and the image of Moses the centerpiece of his message of Jesus. 
Um, and it's all very fascinating. So um, let me point some of these out to you. Okay, I'll, I'll make, I'll make a, a list appear here. Um, first off, when Moses was born, Pharaoh orders all the boys under the age of three to suffer execution, right? Um, this is mirrored in the life of Jesus in Matthew 2.16, okay? Uh, second, Moses passes through the waters of the Red Sea, and then he spends 40 years in the wilderness. And then Jesus, as well, in the writing of Matthew, is baptized and then passes through the waters of the Jordan River and then spends 40 days in the wilderness right afterwards. Moses, um, in the Pentateuch, he receives this, this new law for God's people on Sinai. And in Matthew 5, Jesus... It ha- Matthew presents him as sort of standing on the side of the mountain, right? Teaching this law, just like Moses, the Sermon on the Mount, even though there's not even a mount, mountain there, they present him as standing on the side of a mountain. He's sort of a, probably a small hill. Um, fourth, uh, Moses leads this mountain where he gives them the law. He then leaves this mountain leading a large group of people to this sort of new kingdom that he had for them, like to, to start this new kingdom. And Matthew portrays Jesus the same way, coming down the mountain with a large group of, of people following him in, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. He uses the same language that was used about Moses. Not only that, Matthew actually writes his entire book to mirror the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Um, Moses has five books. Jesus has five discourses. Each one of these discourses actually mirrors the different discourses that Moses taught when he led the people out of bondage and prepared them to be a holy and different people in the world. Matthew organizes his book to look like the books of Moses. Um, Next, when you read the book of Matthew, it also mirrors uh, Moses's miracles. So Moses performs 10 miracles to rescue God's people from bondage. Jesus performs 10 miracles to rescue God's people from their current bondage and their need for reconciliation. Um, And to make sure that the audience does not miss his point, um, this, this prophetic comparison, both Moses and Jesus' miracles are separated into uh, three groups of three and then a single one, okay? So if you read through the works of Moses, there's these miracles that are separated, three, 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 and then one. And then Matthew, when he's writing his own gospel about Jesus, separates the miracles of Jesus, three, 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 and then one. He wants his audience to understand Jesus is the Moses character that we have been waiting for. Jesus is the one who Moses himself said would come who was like Moses, okay? Um, this is how the early Christians are presenting him uh, to the world, to the Jewish people. This is what Stephen is doing. He is presenting Jesus as well as a new Moses. Um, and he wants them to see this. He wants them to see, like, this is it. This is the what you have been waiting for. So the message to the Jewish people in Matthew is clear. Matthew sees Jesus as this new Moses and depicts him as such. So... There's this second argument. Um, so again, that was the first one. The, the, first, the first defense, um, you're, they, they accuse him of, they say, uh, you're blaspheming Moses. He goes, no, I'm not. You did that when Moses was here. I'm actually proclaiming the true Moses in Jesus, okay? So he's saying, I'm not blaspheming. It's, it's been fulfilled. So the second charge that they have against him is that you blasphemed the temple. Um, so you see his answer to this in verse 44 through 48. These are about the temple and its place in the lives of the Jewish people, right? So uh, look at, let's just flip through a few of these. Uh, verse 44, he says, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant with them in the wilderness. So he affirms there was a tabernacle. 
in verse 47, he says, it went from tabernacle to stone building. He says, it was Solomon who built a house for him, okay? So he says, we had this tabernacle that we carried with us to, for God to live in. And then we built this house this made of stone for God to live in. But he's going to say something fascinating in verse 48. He quotes Isaiah and he says, however, the most high God does not live in houses made by human hands. He says, look, you, you had God living in, in a tent, a tabernacle. You had God living in a stone temple. But God has told you from the very beginning, the way this the book of Genesis tells creation uh, and the words of Isaiah. He says, God never wanted to live in your puny handmade houses. He did that for you. Let's, let's build the mindset here of, of, um, of what we have. We have, two ta- we have two temples. We have a tabernacle in the wilderness. We have a temple in Jerusalem. Both of them um, in the ancient world represented temples, which are places where, heaven and earth come together. There's like these little places around in, on the earth, these temples, where human beings believe that the divine spiritual gods and human physical beings came together in these buildings. And it was the one place where that God lived on the earth. And the people wanted a temple. Stephen's argument um, is that God is accommodating them by giving them a temple. God never wanted to live in a temple that we wanted a temple. And so God was accommodating our desire for a building for God to live in for a temple. That's what Stephen is saying. Um, Stephen's argument is that the temple was God accommodating them. Um, God never, like God's plan was never to live in a temple. People want temples, not God. Every society in the world wanted this massive temple to show the greatness of their God. So when other visitors came through their land, gods were geographical, right? They had a place, a city that they lived in. And so when people were traveling through, you would have a temple to your God, and it would be beautiful, and it would tell the story of your God and what your God did, and you worship this God. Um, and the better and more beautiful it was, the more you were respected, the more powerful your God looked, and therefore, the more powerful you looked. And so God gives them, in the mind of Stephen and the early Christians, God gives them this temple to accommodate their desire for this temple. Now, there's some fascinating stuff here. Um, First off, every society wanted God, a God, to dwell in their midst because they wanted it to be their God. But God has been clear from the very beginning of scriptures that he will be the God of the whole world. By them desiring this location where God would live, they want to keep God for themselves as the Jewish God. But God's intention is always to break out and fill the world, never to just dwell in this one place as if God gave them the temple to hold them over and to the point where they would no longer need God in this one location that that they would understand that God is everywhere that the world is God's temple I mean the passages that he quotes here um, let me read this heaven is my throne the earth is my footstool what kind of house will you build for me says the Lord like what kind of house are you going to build for me I I created everything that you live in you're going to build a house for me the world is my footstool, okay? I love that. I love that language. Now, um, it gets really fascinating because he says, he, he reminds them, you always wanted to go back to Egypt. You always wanted to worship their gods. You always wanted to sort of get back into your bondage again that you understood rather than the freedom that you don't understand. Um, 
And so we've already established that. They're always wanting to go back to Egypt. But if you look at the temple that they built, I want to show you some pictures here. So um, there's this uncanny resemblance between the temple that they built, the tabernacle, and where they came from in Egypt. Let me show you this. Here's a, so here's a picture of um, Ramsey's second war camp um, at the Battle of Kadesh. It's a reconstruction. It was on a, it's from a, a relief on... There's this uh, on the north wall of what's called the Great Hall at the, at the Abu Simbel Temple. It's in, it's in Egypt. And on the north wall, this picture is there. Now, this picture is, uh, it's, it's literally in, on several different relief carvings and some tombs and stuff like that. But it's a picture of the camp, the battle camp of Ramses II, the war camp. And look at how, it, how it's set up. You have this outer wall. Um, you have the people there gathering in this big courtyard, and then you have this central uh, sort of structure, and it's rectangle-shaped, and then you have a smaller structure in the middle with two uh, beings with their arm, their wings outstretched. It looks kind of like an Ark of the Covenant, and you have people here that are, that are worshiping, right? So this is Egypt, Egypt temple, Egypt worshiping. That would be the king. The king would sit on that throne. Pharaoh, or the Pharaoh, or Ramses II would sit on that throne. Um, as a as as God in the flesh, right now, here is a drawing, a sketchup of Ramsey's camp, Ramsey the Second's camp, and here underneath that is the tabernacle, how they made it look, and then underneath that, the final temple when they built that. Um, what is happening? Well, you can tell it's the same structure. Um, God is accommodating what they knew; they had never had a temple before. They were raised in Egypt, um, trying to worship Yahweh. But this is how they understood worship after hundreds, possibly thousand years in bondage there. Um, and so God takes this, this idea of worship that they have, and he says, I'm going to change how you worship. And I'm going to give you a temple. At the center of it's not going to be this human king. It's going to be me at the center. I will be your king. You will be my people. Um, and so he literally accommodates their understanding of the temple, and he gives that to them. Even though God never decided, God wanted to tabernacle with them, with them in this totally different way. Uh, and he would eventually lead them there, but this is what he starts with. So Stephen argues that uh, it was because they were stiff-necked people that resisted the Holy Spirit, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Um, and that is why they insist on having, uh, having God their way. They didn't want to move and accept the idea that God was giving them. They wanted to have God their way. And so he quotes Isaiah 66 to prove to them that this is never what God wanted. But, you know, just how God took this person, Moses, it's the same thing. A lot of the Bible is, is pictures of God accommodating us and then leading us out of these old ways of thinking into this new way of thinking and being. Um, so we have this person, Moses, right? And God gives them this leader, Moses, um, and then God eventually replaces Moses with God's own self in Christ Jesus. Um, and then God gives them a temple. And he's going to do the same thing now with the temple. But how? How are we going to go from the idea of God in the temple to God out of the temple? How is this going to work? Well, the early Christians looked to Jesus to reveal God's intention for his dwelling place. So if the temple is the place where heaven and earth come together, so the early Christians... Jesus is the place where heaven and earth come together, okay? If the temple was the place where people were healed and sins were forgiven, for the early Christians, Jesus is the place where the people were healed 
and forgiven. I mean, there's this passage in Mark chapter 2, uh, verse 9 through 10, and it says this, um, Jesus heals this guy, and they're all upset that he's healing him. And Jesus says, um, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So what's he doing? He's giving himself the job of the temple to forgive sins, to heal, and he's calling himself the Son of Man. Uh, this is huge. If you were here in my Bible for Lunch class last week, I talked all about what the phrase Son of Man means, and it's, it's a massive, massive phrase. Um, so in the minds of the Christians, Jesus is doing everything that the temple was intended to do. And Jesus is doing. He's healing people. He's the presence of God. Uh, the temple was also the place where blood was shed as a scapegoat for sin. And in the mind of the early Christians, Jesus was the place where blood was shed to take away their sins. He was the scapegoat. Um, and then the temple was also the place where the, where the Spirit of God dwelled and rested upon the temple, right, over the Holy of Holies. But in, in the minds of the early Christians, Jesus is also where the Spirit of God dwelled which is why the authors of the gospel always have it saying, and Jesus was allowing himself to be led by the spirit into the desert. He allowed himself to be led by the spirit in this place, in that place. Stephen is right. God's intention was never for a building, for a temple made of stone. It was always supposed to be people, God dwelling with people, in people, around people. Jesus was the temple. And the reason Jesus comes to us as the temple is because Jesus is going to reveal to us that we are also supposed to be temple. In Acts chapter 2, the church gathers and they receive the spirit of God that was upon Jesus, that was present at creation. They receive that spirit. That law enters into them as the spirit of God. And now the church is the place where heaven and earth come together. You and I, my brother and my sister, are the place where heaven and earth come together, where sins are forgiven, where people are healed. It is now the church that allows ourselves to be broken and poured out for the world. We are led by that same spirit. And so how do we live? We look at Jesus. This is how we understand what we are supposed to be doing here. All right? Now, what you see in the scriptures is God taking these things that we view as authoritative. For them, it was Moses' law, Moses himself, and the temple. But what you see in the scriptures is God is always taking these things that, that human beings see as authoritative, and they're important, and then God transcends them and says, it was never about this thing. It was always about me. And he accommodates sort of these things that we want as authority and he transcends them, and he offers these things. Um, Jesus is the reality of every authority in our lives. And in fact, the early Christians would argue that every authority in your life is merely a caricature of what Jesus is the reality. So here's what this means. Um, as Christians, we need to realize that every form of authority— in our lives around us is merely a caricature of what Christ is a reality of. And here's what I mean. Um, there are presidents, there are laws, there are constructs, there are, there are these things, these systems that we invent, like capitalism and socialism and communism, and there's democracies, there's republics, there's uh, monarchies and oligarchies. There's all kinds of ways that 
that we are telling narratives and ordering ourselves and forming authorities, okay? Um, so how does God work in the middle of these things? In these things that we're, we are always creating and naming and saying, this is the way, this is the way, this is the way. Well, here and there, God might actually accommodate one or two of these things temporarily to accomplish his work, to move things forward. But God will not submit to them. They, they cannot define God's way of working in this world. None of it can. Um, he will not become one of them. Jesus will not fall into your camp of socialist or capitalist. Jesus was neither of these things. He does not align with any of them. Um, Jesus does not fall in line with either liberals or conservative ideologies. Jesus transcends these things and invites you to transcend them as well through him. These things are all but caricatures of what Jesus actually is. They promise things that only Jesus can deliver. I mean, what are these things? What, what are we looking for in these things? We're looking for peace. We're looking for justice, unity, equity, mercy, salvation, freedom. We're looking for all of these things in these constructs that we put together and that we name. Of course, we're looking for these things. But what is being constantly revealed to us is that these are all the things that only God can give. And when we go to other authorities and we use their methods to get these things that God is offering us, I mean, think about it, peace, justice, unity. I can't name a single structure that human beings have invented that have granted any of this, not collectively, maybe one here and one there. Um, but none of them can claim to do all of the things that Jesus is claiming and that the path of Jesus is claiming to offer us. Okay. Um, these are the things of God, peace, unity, equity, mercy, salvation, justice. These are the things that God gives. These are the things that God deals in and cares about. And when we actually go to these other authorities and use their methods to get the things that, that only God can give, the early church had a word for that. It was called idolatry. It was called worldliness. Um, when we start to argue that Jesus is one of these things that, that we've named, that he is a communist, socialist, capitalist, Democrat, Republican, when we start to argue that Jesus is one of these things, that he is on our side, that is idolatrous. That is worldliness. The ways of Christ do not fit with human political constructions. They soar above them in ways that require our trust and our faith. They soar far above them. So that you do not become entrapped and enslaved by these earthly things. For the early church, the witness of scriptures is, is that Jesus transcends these things. And indeed, he actually becomes these things for us. He is our Moses. He is our temple. He is our king. He is our law, our identity, our job, our president, our, our work ethic, our way forward. This is what Jesus is for us. And that will lead us to ask all kinds of questions. Um, as Christians, when we pass laws, when we do business, when we work to organize society in any capacity, there are questions that we should be asking that keep us in line with the path of Christ 
anything that we do, we ask the question, does this establish justice in the world? Does this provide for the least of these around us in the world? Does this promote the flourishing of humanity of those that it affects? Is this policy about truth or is it about obfuscation and clouding truth? Um, does this thing that we're trying to do, does it bend towards the weak and the marginalized, or does it tend to bend towards the mighty and the powerful so that we can climb ladders? Does this thing we're trying to do make space for those who have not been included up to this point? And how do we include those on the outside who have been left out? Um, does this thing that we're trying to do, does it move us towards not just not just racial reconciliation, because racial reconciliation, um, that can only come after racial justice, which is the repairing of the wrongs in the past. And so anything that we do as Christians, we should be asking, does this repair the wrongs? Does this set, make right the wrongs of the past? If it does not, if it doesn't do all of these things, establish justice, bring salvation and healing and forgiveness, if it doesn't do all of these things, then it's indefensible to Christians. It is not something that we can take part in. If it does something else that actually keeps these things, these attributes of God from moving forward, it is not for us ourselves to defend. Jesus is our law. Jesus is our purpose. Christ is our king. His way, his path is our path, and no other path can be ever again. So if the questions that you're asking, whether you're talking government, politics, social ethics with each other, if the, if, the, if the questions that you're asking are, how does this help us win, my team? How does this help us win? Or if your questions are, how does this benefit, benefit my side? You have conformed to the patterns of the world. It is worldly thinking. You are worldly. And this is what we need to repent of constantly. Sometimes we think we can compartmentalize our lives um, to temple life or societal life, these two separate, like church life and public life, that we have a Christian life and a secular life. This is also nothing more than worldliness. Compartmentalizing these things, that's worldliness. Because you see, you are the temple. Your work, your vocation is the things of Christ establishment of, of your king. This is what you were put here to do. There are, there's not a moment in time in which you are not obligated to do the work of God, healing, saving, pouring out, reconciling, forgiving. Okay? Jesus showed us what it looks like to be that temple. And then Jesus brought us together and gave us his spirit and made us that temple. That is our work. And so as priests in the temple, I want to remind you again, workers of the temple, look for the places where the temple is broken down and falling apart. Look for the places where worldliness has seeped in and push back against that. Remind people where our allegiances lie. Okay? May your actions... Tell the world what our God is really like as his temple.
this was the role of temples, right? You go look at it. You can see the greatness and the power of your God. May somehow we embody that. That's what we need to strive for. So with all that being said, the best way we can embody the temple is through uh, the symbol that's given to us in the communion elements. There is the body of Christ, which is broken for us, for our healing, for our reconciliation, our scapegoat, taking our sins upon himself, claiming them as his, as his own, and then dying to them. And then we have um, the wine, which symbolizes the blood of Christ poured out for all of us. If you have these elements, um, let's now take a moment and receive the Eucharist, the good gift, uh, seeing Christ in the common. Um, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. And whenever you are finished with that, why don't you join us for this week's Collect Prayer, uh, written by our prayer team. A new one this week. Let's read it together and, and, and begin to pray it together throughout this week, shall we? God, our rock, who shepherds us through the desert, give us patience in the times that we feel lost. Remove our focus from what is gone and remind us of our blessings. Lift us when we are down. Renew our hearts and minds with your word. Grant us the eyes to see to where you are calling us. Bolster our faith. Guide us to our purpose as we become one people, bringing your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus. Amen. Grace and peace. I hope you have an amazing week. Um, stay safe. Take care of each other. Go in peace.